Hey guys, welcome to a new episode. This is your host Mohammed. We'll get started. Acyanotic congenital heart disease with increased pulmonary vascularity. Now, I'm talking about disorders that present in the neonatal period. The differential is four, hypoplastic left heart, aortic coarctation, congestive heart failure, and neonatal sepsis. Why I said presents neonatally because we have acyanotic congenital heart disease, which present in childhood that include ASD, VSD, endocardial cushion defect. Those obviously are small issues compared to the issues I mentioned right now, and that's why these present in the neonatal period. Again, acyanotic congenital heart disease presenting in neonatal period with increased pulmonary blood flow, hypoplastic left heart, aortic coarctation, congestive heart failure, and neonatal sepsis. Review question from a couple of episodes back. What are the cystic lung disease differential? The differential include LIP, PLCH, LAM, and Berthog-Dubé. Again, LIP, which is lymphocytic interstitial pneumonia, PLCH, pulmonary lung hand cell histiocytosis, LAM is lymphangiomyotosis, and Berthog-Dubé. Another review question from a couple of days ago. In for cardiac MRI, what is the role of first-pass perfusion? We use first-pass perfusion to detect perinfarct ischemia. Role of velocity-encoded phase contrast imaging. This determines the regurgitant volume and fraction of cardiac output. Delayed enhancement. So delayed gadolinium enhancement is used for a couple of things. One, infarction evaluation, diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, quantification of myocardial scarring, and assessment of myocardial viability. Let's take it from the top. First pass perfusion used for detection of perinfarct ischemia, velocity encoded phase contrast imaging used to determine the regurgitant volume and fraction of cardiac output, delayed enhancement, infarction evaluation, diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, quantification of myocardial scarring, and finally assessment of myocardial viability most common form of craniosynostosis, that is scaphocephaly or dolichocephaly. This, is, this causes premature closure of the sagittal suture, which produces an elongated skull because the skull can only grow in the anterior-posterior dimensions. Now let's summarize a question that we repeated multiple times on prior episodes. Tracheal pathologies, we said for tracheal thickening, non-neoplastic tracheal thickening. We kept saying that there's a difference between cartilaginous involvement and disease processes that have anterior uh, circumferential involvement. So trachea is searing. The posterior, most posterior aspect of the trachea is non-cartilaginous. The involvement of this non-cartilaginous portion can give narrow down the differential for us. So disease processes that spares the posterior trachea. We said relapsing polychondritis and tracheobronchopathia osteochondroplastica, TPO. Now, circumferential involvement, we said that a couple of times, but I'll summarize it again. We have four things that can cause circumferential tracheal thickening, tuberculosis, amyloidosis, Wagner's granulomatosis, and sarcoidosis. For TB, it presents with smooth concentric thickening, and you would look for other signs of TB process on the imaging if they provide it, but it's smooth circumferential thickening. For amyloidosis, as you would expect, this is a deposition process, so you would have irregular thickening with possible calcifications. 
for sarcoidosis, you look for additional finding of sarcoidosis, including mediastinal lymphadenopathy or prominent hilar lymph nodes. For Wagner's disease, I guess it would depend on the question, but you can look for history of sinus disease that would clue you that they're talking about Wagner's granulomatosis. All right, now this is one very big question. We're going to talk about intracranial or central nervous system cysts. The cysts we're going to talk about are the neuroenteric cyst, ependymal cyst, Rathke's cleft cyst, colloid cyst, arachnoid cyst, epidermoid cyst, and finally we'll end with the dermoid cyst. We'll talk about the location and most common features. From the top, neuroenteric cyst, typically spinal, intradural, can be extramedullary. So the intradural is more common than extramedullary. And in the head, it would occur in the posterior fossa. On imaging CT scan, it's variable, can be hypo to iso or hyperdense, does not contain any calcifications. On T1, it's iso or hyperintense to CSF. On T2, it's hyperintense to CSF without diffusion restriction. Ependymal cyst is an intracranial cyst, can be supraternitorial or paraventricular, and is indistinguishable from other simple interventricular cysts. Ependymal cysts are lined by ependymal cells, which produce CSF. So on MRI, the content of the cyst would follow CSF on all patterns, as well as on CT scan. So it would be iso-intense to, uh, iso to MRI, CSF, and iso-dense to uh, CSF on CT scan. Rathke's cleft cyst, so it's a intracellular supracellular cyst. This is a benign cell cyst lined by ciliated mucus producing epithelium, and that would describe the internal signal of the cyst. So here, as opposed to ependymal cyst where it's lined by CSF, here it's mucus producing cells. On non-contrast CT scan, round lobulated hypodense approximately 75% of the time can demonstrate calcifications. On contrasted CT scan, Rathke's cleft cyst does not demonstrate any enhancement, but there is the claw sign, which demonstrate the enhancing pituitary gland that is compressed by this cyst. T1 and T2 images are variable based on the cyst content. On flare, it's hyperintense. And on contrast imaging, there is no enhancement, obviously, but we said there is the claw sign, which is the enhancing rim of pituitary tissue compressed by the Rathke's cleft cyst. Colloid cyst, this is cyst seen in the third ventricle near the foramen of Monroe, typically benign but may cause mass effect and present with acute and profound hydrocephalus due to obstruction. As we said, occurs near the foramen of Monroe, which is the emptying of the lateral ventricles or the way that lateral ventricles empty into the third ventricle. Now on MRI, it's hyperintense on T1 and isointense on T2. On CT scan, and this is a characteristic, it's a well-delineated hyperdense mass on a non-enhanced study. Again, very hyperdense. It looks like a very, you know, filled with calcium or something like that. It is a hyperdense, hyperattenuating mass on non-enhanced CT scan. This is a colloid cyst. Arachnoid cyst is commonly supratentorial and involves the salvian fissure, can sometimes occur in the intraspinal or posterior fossa. It follows CSF on all sequences, just like ependymal cell. Epidermoid cyst, 
typically occurs in the cerebellopontine angle, most commonly in a middle-aged patient. Now, this is almost always extraaxial and characteristically ins insinuate between the structures encasing the cranial nerves and vessels. Again, epidermoid cyst occurs at the cerebellopontine angle and it wraps itself around the vessels and the cranial nerves. On imaging, on MRI, it follows CSF signal except for flare and diffusion restriction. It will demonstrate diffusion restriction and flare signal unlike arachnoid cyst and ependymal cyst. Finally, dermoid cyst, benign intracranial cyst. The key thing is that dermoid cyst can contain fat and that's how we see it on CT scan. We'll see a fatty attenuation mass in the middle of the cyst or in the middle of the brain. Now, it can cause chemical meningitis if it's rupture, and they can rupture. It's not a rare phenomena. Or ventriculitis if they rupture inside the ventricle. Now, let's take it from the top. Neuroenteric cyst, we're not going to see that. Very, very rare, so we're not going to talk about it. Ependymal cyst. These are cysts lined by neuroepithelial cells, produce CSF, so it will follow CSF signal on all sequences. The next cyst that follows CSF on all signals is the arachnoid cyst, supratentorially most common, follows CSF signal on all sequences. Epidermoid cyst will follow CSF signal on most sequences except for flare and DWI. Dermoid cyst benign just like epidermoid cyst the key thing is it contains fat and can cause chemical meningitis or ventriculitis if it ruptures finally we're left with a colloid cyst colloid cyst is a very unique cyst if they're going to show it they're going to show it on a ct scan because it has a very characteristic appearance it's a hyper dense cyst it would be near the third ventricle and even though it's benign can present with uh, signs of hydrocephalus due to obstruction Finally, the last cyst is Rathke's cleft cyst. Obviously, we said this is adjacent to the pituitary between the pituitaries, anterior and posterior pituitary, and it is made up of mucus-producing cells, and so it will have mucus, commonly hypodense, but can have some calcification. There is no enhancement. The enhancement we see with Rathke's cleft cyst is due to in normal enhancement of the pituitary gland, and we'll see the sign where the pituitary gland will enhance around the cyst, which is causing mass effect on the pituitary gland. Just a sneak preview for tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're gonna talk about the neurocutaneous syndromes. Just we like, we talked about the intracranial cyst. We're gonna talk about neurocutaneous syndrome and preview. We'll talk about NF1 compared to NF2, compare it to Sturge-Weber, compared to tuberous sclerosis, osler weberandu in the brain, and von Hippelandu disease. Most important structure in prenatal cardiac ultrasound is the moderator bands. The moderator bands outline the right ventricle, and that's how we know our anatomy. So look for the moderator band on ultrasound, which defines the right ventricle. Acinar cell carcinoma, this is a rare and aggressive variant of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, typically seen in elderly patients. Now, the presentation depends on the hormone that it secretes, and this secretes lipase, so we see triad of lipase hypersecretion, which include subcutaneous fat necrosis, bone infarcts, which cause joint pain, and isonophilia. 
Again, acinarsal neoplasm, rare but aggressive pancreatic adenocarcinoma, as if pancreatic adenocarcinoma not aggressive by itself, but this is, I guess, super, super bad. Produces subcutaneous fat necrosis, bone infarcts, and eosinophilia. MRI is shown demonstrating scattered areas of gyri diffusion restriction. What is the key differential they want us to get at? It is Kurtzfeldt-Jacob disease or CGD or mad cow disease. Again, this presents with scattered areas of gyri cortical uh, diffusion restriction. Again, multifocal scattered areas of gyri diffusion restriction is CJD disease. Now, we can have gyri calcification, which would be best shown on CT scan, and this is consistent with Sturge-Weber disease, which we talked about previously. Again, scattered areas of diffusion restriction in the gyri is CJD, and gyri calcification is Sturge-Weber disease syndrome, I mean Sturge-Weber syndrome. Atrial lesion, meaning a lesion in the atria of the lateral ventricle, demonstrating Protonaceous content with slightly T1 hyperintense on MRI, diffusion restriction, and lax enhancement. This would be consistent with choroid plexus xanthogranuloma. Again, choroid plexus xanthogranuloma is typically asymptomatic and is seen in the atria of the lateral ventricle. It is a protonaceous cyst which demonstrates slightly T1 hyperintense signal, diffusion restriction, and non enhancement. Imaging features of subependymoma. The key thing is to contrast it with central neurocytoma. We just said on the prior podcast from yesterday that central neurocytoma is a lesion attached to the ventricle, the septum, and demonstrates avid enhancement with solid and cystic areas. Now, subependymoma arises from the wall of the ventricle, demonstrates minimal enhancement, and is a slow growing lesion. Again, subependymoma arises from the subependymal cells from the wall of the ventricle and demonstrate minimal enhancement. This is in comparison typically to central neurocytoma, typically arising off the septum and demonstrate significant enhancement. Benign cause of newborn echogenic renal pyramids, again, neonatal echogenic renal pyramids on ultrasound. This is TAM horse fall protein, also known as transient neonatal renal medullary hyperechogenicity. I like the transient neonatal renal medullary hyperechogenicity because it really tells us what it is. So it's a transient benign process due to tubular immaturity, and this typically resolved by 10 days. If it's not resolved by 10 days, we need to consider other differential. Again, it is normal up to 10 days, and it is echogenic material within the renal medullary pyramids, or the renal pyramids, and it should resolve in 10 days. Typically, we don't follow it, but if it persists, or if we worried, we can follow it after 10 days, and at that point, we need to think of a pathologic process. Review from a couple of episodes ago, and we'll end with this question, how to reduce chemical shift. We can reduce it by decreasing the voxel size. We can increase the receiver bandwidth, bandwidth, and we can use fat suppression again. We can reduce chemical shift using by decreasing the voxel size, increasing the receiver bandwidth, and using fat suppression. Thank you guys and have a good day.